Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G. Today in the news, this from universityaffairs.ca. We need to improve teachers' mental health literacy. Faculties of education have a role to play in ensuring that teachers can identify and respond to students' mental health challenges. Educators spend a significant amount of time with young people, some of whom may show early signs of a mental illness, particularly during the adolescent years when most mental health disorders can be diagnosed. They are often the first to observe student behaviors that may portend mental health problems and be the first to uh, secure support for those students who are in need. And yet we know that while approximately 20% of children and youth in Canada will develop a mental illness in their lifetime, many of those who require care do not obtain rapid access to the help they require. One of the contributing components to this dilemma is that teachers report that they don't know how to respond to the student mental health challenges they see in schools. The Canadian Teachers Federation surveyed teachers in 2012, 70% of respondents indicated that they had not received professional preparation in mental health education and felt unable to sufficiently understand or appropriately respond to students' mental health needs. How can facilit- uh, faculties of education? How can faculties of education address this gap in teacher preparation, both at the pre-service and in-service level? Teachers' mental health literacy may hold the key to reversing some of the disturbing statistics related to youth mental health and improving health outcomes. Mental health literacy is defined by Stanley Kutcher and. Yifeng Wei of Dalhousie University as understanding how to obtain and maintain positive mental health, knowing about mental disorders and their treatments, decreasing stigma related to mental disorders, and enhancing help-seeking efficacy. This concept underpins the work the University of BC Faculty of Education has been doing, along with faculties in Western University and St. Francis Xavier to address this gap in teacher education and better prepare educators for today's classrooms. These faculties of education worked with Drs. Kutcher and Way to co-create a freely available, flexible online curriculum resource called Teach Mental Health. It was piloted in a variety of delivery formats as a mandatory online course, as a face-to-face elective and as a partial component within a required teacher education course. In addition, 27 faculties of education across Canada reviewed and provided feedback during the pilot period, identifying the importance of flexibility, modularity, and ease of online use. Given the wide range of contexts in which a curriculum resource might be used, it was important to ensure that the content was based on the best available evidence, was able to be delivered in a variety of formats, depending on time availability, course requirements, and whether it was instructor-led, self-guided, or other. Several research studies have now been conducted at the pilot sites, and each attests to the significant and sustained increases in understanding about mental health and mental illness, also reductions in stigma and improvement in help-seeking attitudes. Here are some of the comments from pre-service teachers about some key understandings they developed. First one, it is important to use mental health words accurately and correctly in daily life and not to exaggerate thoughts, feelings with mental disorders like depression and anxiety. Number two, stress is not always bad for you. It is an adaptive response. How you view stress is important and can change its impact on your health. Number three, Be critical of studies done and jargon used to sway opinion. For example, risk factor 
is often misinterpreted to mean causation. The development of mental health literacy as a means of equipping pre-service teachers to enter the teaching profession mirrors ongoing work at the in-service teacher level. Many provinces have undertaken professional development in mental health literacy and noted improved outcomes, such as increased knowledge about mental health and mental illness and reduced stigma and improved help-seeking, which I just mentioned. This among both students and teachers alike. In British Columbia, almost every school district has taken part in a mental health literacy trainer institute, uh, this at the University of BC, led by Dr. Kutcher, as part of a provincial strategy to develop mental health literate school districts. Summer institutes of an introductory and more advanced nature are also being offered. This professional development rollout has been overseen by a provincial steering committee comprised of leaders from the British Columbia Teachers Federation, school superintendents, school counselors, principals and vice principals, the Ministry of Education, and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, also BC Children's Hospital, Foundry BC, and the UBC Faculty of Education. A lot of partners. Early implementation efforts in North Vancouver, for example, have shown promising outcomes among the district's students, staff, teachers, and also parents. Coordination with community health services is an essential component to providing in-time care. And, as has been noted in other provinces, such as Alberta, where a similar approach has been taken, access to critical mental health care improves in places where mental health literacy has been widely taught. The Association of Canadian Deans of Education takes mental health education very seriously and is dedicating a portion of its upcoming conference at the Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences, being held in Vancouver this June, to learn what various faculties are doing to address mental health education and develop related knowledge and competencies within their teacher education programs. Preparing educators for the challenges of today's classroom must include introducing them to evidence-based mental health literacy as a foundation for developing knowledge and competencies that help not only the students in their care, but themselves and their loved ones as well. Mental health education affects every part of the K-12 and post-secondary education systems and society more broadly. There is much that faculties and education can do. That from Wendy... Wendy Carr, a professor of teaching and senior advisor at the University of British Columbia. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Next article here from Forbes.com, Why Mental Health is an Executive Priority. Most of the world's population spends one-third of their adult lives at work. When work is fulfilling, it can help a person feel engaged, valued, and productive. When work is stressful, the overall quality of life suffers, and work-related concerns can exacerbate mental health conditions, including anxiety and depression. There's interconnectivity between our personal and professional lives, too. Satisfaction in our home lives allows us to bring our best selves to work. But when challenges in our personal lives demand attention and induce stress, we can become distracted, upset, and exhausted. In today's fast-paced society, the line between work and life is fading, making mental health increasingly difficult to prioritize. Almost 20% of working-age adults in the U.S. experience some type of mental health challenge in a given year. Additionally, rates of major depression increased by 33% between 2013 and 2016. Chances are, either you, a loved one, or someone you work alongside has experienced a mental health challenge something no one can simply leave at home and deal with outside of work hours. For employers, that means that a significant portion of their workforce may be struggling on any given day, resulting in impaired performance, so-called presenteeism, where an employee is at work but unable to be fully productive, and also absenteeism. Statistics show that depression and anxiety cost the global economy an estimated $1 trillion annually in lost productivity. Unfortunately, the stigma surrounding mental health, along with a fear of being viewed differently as a team member or for a promotion, or even losing your job, 
has left much of America's workforce avoiding treatment. For example, in the case of depression, the costs of an untreated illness are significant. Mental disorders are the single most expensive category of mental costs, health costs for many employers across all industries and sizes. According to a 2013 Gallup poll, U.S. workers suffering from depression miss an estimated 68 million more workdays each year compared to their counterparts who have not been uh, depressed. Also, a person suffering from depression accrues average annual health care costs of almost $15,000 compared with the $5,900 average for the total population, and they make six times as many emergency room visits as the overall population. Few employers are aware of the extent and details of these costs due to underreporting, stigma, and complex or unclear data. The first step employers can take to mitigate the hidden burden of mental health conditions is to recognize, or better yet, measure a broad spectrum of metrics. Anonymous employee surveys or other assessment tools can help shed light on the mental health of your workforce, including workplace culture issues that may be impeding the effectiveness of other efforts. It is not only unrealistic, but also costly for an employer to assume that its workforce is not in need of mental health support. Last article for today is from the Mountain View Gazette. After suffering a career-ending hockey injury, Didsbury's Josie Hadway didn't know where to turn. The 19-year-old suffered through anxiety and depression when she realized that college hockey would no longer be a part of her life. Fortunately, Hadway had great support from her family and friends. After receiving that help, Hadway decided she wanted to help others by raising money for mental health awareness. She says, I was kind of having my own struggles. My main sport had been taken away. A lot of anxiety and depression had built up. Can't necessarily say it's from my concussions, but it's really increased from them. She raised the money by donating the sale of a bull, which netted $18,000. The money was donated to three charities, Alberta Children's Hospital, the Do More Egg Foundation, and Northland College Student Mental Health Group. Her parents, Tom and Carol, own and operate Westway Farms just east of Didsbury, where she grew up. As a youngster, Hadway was an accomplished hockey player. She attended the Edge School in Calgary from grades 10 to 12, where she took classes and played high-level hockey. After graduation, Hadway went to Northland College in Wisconsin, where she suited up for the women's hockey team. Unfortunately, after suffering from a number of concussions, she was told she wouldn't be able to play hockey again. Although she won't be playing hockey anymore, Hadway plans to finish her schooling at Northland, she is studying sustainable entrepreneurship and sustainable agriculture and community development. It's right on Lake Superior, which is absolutely beautiful, she says. The North Woods are absolutely beautiful as well. I originally went there for hockey. I got scouted, which is how I found out about the school. And even though I'm not playing hockey, I still love the school. They focus on the environment a lot. Hadway took a medical leave last year from Northland College and returned to the farm from May until January. She returned to the school in February for the second semester of her sophomore year. After I really went through something, I started to think, she said, I haven't really had many conversations about mental health with people in the agricultural industry. That's something that my family is really close to, obviously. Once my family began to understand a bit more, I said I think we need to play our part in mental health and agriculture and bring some kind of awareness because it's not where it should be. Hadway and her parents decided that donating a bull from their annual bull sale would be a good starting point. It was one bull, she said. We had a bunch of donations, and the lot got donated back and resold. We ended up making $18,000. We were also selling bracelets. It was important for Hadway to donate to the charities involved in mental health, which were the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation and its Build Them Up Center for Child and Adolescent Mental Health, as I mentioned, the Do More Egg Foundation, a not-for-profit organization that focuses on mental health in agriculture across Canada, and as I mentioned, the mental health group from her school, 
Northland College. What really made me want to go through this with this was hearing that farming has one of the highest rates of suicide in Canada, she said. After hearing that and thinking that not many people talk about mental health in agriculture, how many people are suffering? How many people could we potentially help? They don't even have to stand up and tell their story. Maybe we can help them motivate them to get them the help that they need. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating Campus Community Radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston Community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at CFRC.ca. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. Today I'm pleased to welcome Emesha Kirai. She is a producer with Viva Productions here in Kingston. Emesha, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into some of the work that you're currently doing, maybe you can take us back in time and share some of your evolution. Sure. Ah, where does one begin? Um, I kind of have a bit of a different story. It's not very linear to how I ended up in the work that I'm in. So I moved to Canada at three and a half with my parents and my older brother. I am what I affectionately call a displaced Hungarian in that I was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore um, in former Yugoslavia. So when my parents moved us here, they didn't have a lot to their name. Um, They definitely started from scratch and hoped for the best. And I grew up in St. Catharines for the majority of my life. Um, jumping forward quite a bit into what I like to call my turbulent 20s, I definitely took an unconventional route to how I stumbled into my career. Um, early on, I decided that I needed to try something different and shake the cobwebs out. And everything that everyone else was doing seemed to make a lot of sense for them and not a lot of sense for me. Mm. So I moved to China. And I lived there for a year and a half, and I taught uh, English as a second language, in part because I had to learn English as a second language, so I knew what that was like, and in part because I also thought I was going to be a high school teacher. Mm. Um, I had some really great mentors in high school. I really loved English language and literature, philosophy, reading, teaching, um, it all fit with my personality, but the career path didn't make sense for my generation at that time. Um, I realized going to teacher's college was a bit of career suicide, and so I decided um, I might as well give it a try before I dedicate myself to it too, too far. So I moved away, got lost, got found, got <laughs> lost again. <laughs> <laughs> moved back more lost than found. <laughs> and in my uh, part desperation, part just open to anything uh, mentality, I applied all over the place for all different kinds of jobs that I had no business being in. Um, but what I had really learned being away 
was uh, grit and some life skills. There were moments traveling where I was absolutely able to say to myself, you know what, this might be how I die. And okay. (laughs) Um, And then I didn't. And it happened over and over again. And I kept not. So I realized, you know what, maybe it's just stick-to-itiveness, not putting yourself in dangerous, terrible situations, which I didn't. But um, it's kind of that grit of sticking to an idea, even if you don't know where it'll lead you. And my idea was to find something that I was good at. Hmm. And when I took a look at what I was good at, it really boiled down to having conversations with people, connecting with them, um, managing difficult scenarios. And for some strange reason, I have a love-hate relationship for deadlines. (laughs) (laughs) So I just applied to everything I could think of. Um, in a roundabout way, I also stumbled across a production assistant slash writer role, uh, which had a lot of um, written and creative elements to it that I knew I had and I knew was a bit of a unique skill set, but it also required a sense of professionalism and client-facing management and um, customer service skills at its core. Mm. So I tied the two together took a shot in the dark, um, and before I knew it, I was moving back from St. Catharines to Kingston, and that was five years ago. Wow. Quite, yeah. a, quite, a, quite a journey so far. <laughs> and a lot in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's how I ended up in a very roundabout way at Viva, and I've been with the company now for five and a half years and just worked my way up into being a producer, which at the beginning was very much an acting title um, with a heavy dose of understanding that I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) in the role. Um, But the point was to learn, and I did. And so when you think back now, Mm -hmm. um, over the course of your life, did, did you have much of an interest in film or anything as a kid? Is there anything that sticks up now that that would make any sense, even at a subconscious level, to to where you've ended up in life? Um, I actually grappled with that for a while because I heard from a lot of people in any element of their career, whether it's film or or entirely otherwise, they can hear about the vets who have known they want to be a veterinarian their whole lives. And that uh, was not so black and white for me. Um, But in talking with my mom recently... She uh, she had me come home one time, not that long ago, probably within the last year, and said, you need to watch some of these home videos. And I'm like, I really don't want to watch my home videos. <laughs> no, you need to watch these home videos. And I was like, all right, fine. So we sat down, and our home videos were very purposeful. They were meant to showcase what our lives looked like to my grandparents that were still back in former Yugoslavia Hmm. and to my aunts and uncles and cousins just to say like, you know, you didn't have Skype, you didn't have FaceTime, you couldn't just call someone and instantaneously have them on a camera in front of you. So my dad, the moment they could, uh, invested both in a VCR and in a camcorder and was that 90s dad that had the camcorder around his kids, but it was very intentional to show just a snippet of our lives. And Mm. there was no editing involved. He would just film it. Sometimes he wouldn't even watch it through and just send it off to my grandparents and cousins. Mm. So I never did actually, I remember moments of it, but I never did uh, like ever sit down and watch family videos through with my parents up until about a year ago. And um, I was grappling right at this time with that question of how did I end up where I am like I I knew technically the decisions that I had made to get here but not the why behind them and my mom just she wasn't she sat beside me she wasn't even watching the video she was watching me for my reaction and it slowly dawned on me that from the very young age of four or five I was already my dad's little producer I was telling him what to film, I was narrating, I was making suggestions behind the camera, Um, (laughs) if I thought something wasn't clear, I would elaborate, and you know, little kid logic, like, how do you come up with the stuff you come up with, really? Yeah. 
but I, without even realizing it, um, I knew I didn't love to be in front of the lens, but I definitely loved to have control of the production. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was put aside for a long time. I was always into photography. I always had a bit of a creative eye. I like to make things pretty around me, mm-hmm. but it never, it was never an obvious translation. It wasn't until my mom showed me that, that it really clicked for me, just how deep that ran. Wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> and so now, so you've been with Viva, you said for five and a half? Well, yeah, just over five years. Yeah. Over five years. And so we met, just for listeners, we, Amesha and I met at uh, a recent event at the Kingston Film Festival, and so there was a story that Amesha had shared with me at that event that I thought was just really touching and just a beautiful um, way to capture the legacy of, of someone's life, and, and so maybe you can share that with us. Your company was brought in to, to do what in this woman's life? Um, so essentially we had a woman, um, by the name of Florence who works alongside Compassionate Kingston reach out and she basically just wanted to have a camera in the room to film an interview that she wanted to have with, um, by the, uh, the woman by the name of Jeannie Rosen and Regina Rosen is, I'm sure for many listeners tuning in, a, a notable member of the in the Rosen family and what um, these women put their heads together and wanted to leave behind one final legacy piece uh, that spoke to a life of philanthropy and charity and giving back that uh, Jeannie Rosen had lived. Um, She did a lot for the community was a very vocal and advocate member in ways that I certainly I don't understand because I I haven't been in Kingston forever but even in the little bit that I got to know knew she had made huge waves in many many people's lives and so when Florence reached out and said that she wanted uh, to conduct this interview I realized very quickly that this was not just a camera and record set up that we needed to have a full, well-rounded human conversation. So I really wanted to get to know Florence, wanted to get to know Compassionate Kingston and really understand what it meant to have a conversation around death and what it meant to look death in the eye and know and choose to make it peaceful for yourself and have an open, honest, frank conversation about it to leave behind um, something positive and something very human as opposed to just a Q&A. Um, and so that's that's kind of the journey that Florence and I took. And I brought my own empathetic views to it, and, and she brought a lifetime's worth of friendship and uh, understanding. And Jeannie just really gave it her all um, in terms of being frank Hmm. and um, sharing her thoughts on her own life, but also her own mortality. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so was it difficult? You're brought in to do one thing, and then as as a producer and the visionary, you're thinking, oh my goodness, we can do so much more with this. Was it difficult mm-hmm. to kind of step in and say, actually, I know what you were looking for, but this is what I need to suggest? <laughs> um, in this case, no. It was so instinctual. Um, I really um, felt like I connected with Florence's vision, and I think for her, she was appreciative that it wasn't just you know stick a camera on a tripod hit record um it was it was a really synergistic relationship and i shared that interview space in the sense that i wasn't the one to directly ask the questions florence was um which is a very unique space for me because as typically i am the one um asking those questions and having that conversation mm-hmm. um and so to to share that was a I wanted to respect the space and I wanted to respect the creative endeavor that, that she wanted 
um, within the project. So taking a step back and really just guiding it was a unique opportunity for me to learn as well. But no, I, I, I knew I had to give her more than she realized she could ask for. Hmm. Interesting. And so is this video available for public viewing or is it more of a private thing? It is. It is available for public viewing. I should know better where it's at. I'm quite sure at least one of them is on our website, but probably after this conversation, I'll make it a little more obvious and easy to find. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely on our website, eroproductions.ca would be the easiest place to find it. Okay. Um, And then we'll just, maybe we'll cycle it through our social media so it's a little more fun and center to view as well. Yeah. And now, just switching gears just for a second, um, this recent, uh, the film festival in Kingston, so Mm -hmm. you were asked to come in and, well, we met originally, the the first session was a a presentation by the Ontario Film Commission, and then the second thing was a, a breaking in event, very social, kind of moving around, asking people questions, and you were brought in as one of the experts that people could ask questions to around, you know, the things that you do, the work that you do. And so maybe you can speak to what you're seeing in terms of the evolution of Kingston as a film locale destination, um, how that could influence your work. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Um, I'm, I've only just come into a place in my own career to really start to think in that direction for where, you know, Viva can grow and and where I can grow within that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the film office is doing an absolutely incredible job of just tying in so many different avenues um, to get into whether it's filmmaking in particular or you know, television shows or something of your own endeavors and being independent in that way, um, or contributions from companies such as ourselves uh, and starting to get in the ring of those bigger players. Mm. Um, So it is exciting to see, certainly. It's very much um, from the ground up, which I also wholeheartedly appreciate for how difficult that is to get things started. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely think there's a a space for it to grow in Kingston. I think we're a bit of a, a gem that's hidden right now but once we're realized it's going to explode Mm -hmm. um i think we're also at a point in time where content creation has so many different platforms as opposed to the more traditional distribution uh, methods that we had even five ten years ago um let alone where it's growing for how how easy it is to consume content for people now whether it's good or not is a whole other story but it's it's certainly easier to get your stuff out there which is which is always good mm-hmm. um so i'm curious to see where it grows um but i do think we already live in a very creative atmosphere within the surrounding area i mean i if i'm not mistaken isn't Gananoque in the surrounding area the most artists per capita for living or something to that effect? Is it? Don't quote wow. me on that. But there's, I mean, and you can see it if you look around and if you want to be in that world, there's a lot of culture and a lot of artistic endeavors happening here from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So I don't see why film couldn't be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the Kingston Film Office. Uh, I feel like I want to, on that note, send a shout out to Alex Jensen, who's... <laughs> Who's, we all owe a lot to Alex. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the man behind the mission, and I know from mm-hmm. my conversations with him that he years ago he tried to get get this in, the, the, the film industry really rooted in Kingston, and there just wasn't enough interest or, or whatever. The infrastructure just wasn't there, and he's just been a tenacious, tenacious dude over the years to, to get back and to make sure that this area is being recognized. And so... He's doing amazing work. He, him and his uh, co-worker there, I think her name's Alana, um, they, the Kingston Film Office just started in 2018, so it gives you an idea of how fresh and real um, and grassroots all of this really is. And so I think Absolutely. it's really ex- exciting right now. 
Um, so thank you, Alex. <laughs> yes, thank you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so with Viva, where do you see, I know you said in terms of your relationship with the, the growth of the film industry, television and production, et cetera, in this area, um, that you're curious to see how that grows and, and, and how that impacts your work. Aside from that, or in addition to that, do you do you have a sense of what your vision is for, for your, your place within Viva over the next five, ten years? Um, I mean, as a company, Anthony has done an incredible job of really understanding and recognizing a market need when he started Viva over eight years ago. And um, he really just saw the potential for how much more accessible video production is where you didn't need a multimedia company uh, conglomerate to come in and film your commercials anymore, where you really could um, invest in the equipment yourself and grow with it. And he did. He absolutely grew with it. And in the last five plus years that I've been with the company, um, we have watched those tides turn and shift and evolve and change. And I mean, even when I started, the ideal ask was a three to five minute corporate video, whereas now um, they're coming up with much shorter ways to get your message across on a whole bunch of different platforms. Everyone is scrambling to try and figure out where people are watching, for how long, what they're watching, what keeps their interest, how quickly they drop off. I mean, all of these metrics aside, um, to me, what it really comes down to is storytelling and connecting with people. And an ad doesn't just have to be an advertisement anymore because that's the stuff we've learned to filter out. Mm. So yes, I work for a corporate creative video production company, but at the core of it, what we do, and if you, if you really see it behind the scenes, it's connecting with people to get them to tell their message and their vision. And a corporate video isn't a corporate video anymore. And it shouldn't be, if it is, you're losing your audience already. Um, and so just, just, Getting that is like, it's sometimes it's turning the Titanic on a dime Mm. to get that shift. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it can be, change is scary. Um, Fads come and go really quickly. I try not to pay attention to the fads so much as the more universal truths behind advertising. Yeah. Um, And I very much believe in ethical marketing and ethical advertising. I don't. I don't go for the low hanging fruit and I discourage people who do when it comes to ads. So that aside, cause that's, I think something Viva will always do and is good at and will grow with that industry. Mm-hmm. I think the the side piece to that is also that deeper storytelling, more of those opportunities, maybe not necessarily end of life conversations, although I am always open to those, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but more of that storytelling, more opportunity to use, um, an actually, you know, well put together, cohesive, creative team to tell a story as opposed to just, sitting a camera down on a tripod and hitting record. Mm. Um, There's so much that goes into it um, that people don't know to see until they maybe work with us. And um, it's not as easy as, and you know this because you interview people for a living, it's not as easy as having a list of questions and asking them back and forth. That's not how you actually get the reactions that you want to or the emotions that you want to out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, And then even if you get absolute dynamite, if you don't know how to edit it together and it falls flat or you don't know how to tell that story, then it's not going anywhere. So it's a very... It's a lot more than people realize. There's a lot of creativity and effort that goes into it. But we also try and be very transparent um, in that process and really bring anyone I'm working with in that process. And to tie it back, that's exactly what I wanted to do with Compassionate Kingston. 
I didn't want them to feel like they were just hiring a company to put a camera down. If we're doing this, let's do it right. Mm. And they must have been blown away by the final product. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I mean, given what they were expecting and what you were able to pull out of the experience, it sounds like it was a cut above. I hope so. Thank you. Um, I mean, yeah, I really, I really tried for that. We really try for that. We all really try for that. Hmm. And I think, too, I agree with you around the, the when you're asking questions. Oftentimes when I'm interviewing someone, they'll say, well, are you going to send me a list of the questions so I can be more prepared? And I often say, I can, I'll tell you the structure, kind of the loose structure that I go by, which is effectively, you know, introducing the person, um, having them take us back in time, and then and then bring us to present day and talk more about what's present day. But the reason I don't send a list of questions is I know that if I've got a list of questions in front of me, I'm going to be focused on when I'm getting to my next question rather than really listening intently in mining through the conversation, those moments where, oh, I really want to ask about that because that's an important piece that you're not going to be able to discern that ahead of time. It's only in the moment. So I want to be focused as much as I can on every word that they're saying so I can find those gems that are coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't be present otherwise. Um, and I've had it happen. I have definitely shot myself in the foot sending the questions ahead of time <laughs> and then showing up on set only to realize that they are regurgitating structured sentences that they have memorized <laughs> and did not translate well. It doesn't translate well. So I'm, I'm of the same mindset. I would rather say, okay, here are the topics we're going to talk about, but this is a conversation and you're going to sound best having a conversation than you are rehearsing your lines. Yes. Yeah. Most of the time it works now. Granted, I also have the experience to know to say that. Mm. um, Whereas I I definitely didn't at the beginning. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. The evolution, the the continued evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything else that you feel would be worthwhile to share can you tell us uh about also how, how people can check out your company and the work that you guys are doing yeah absolutely so we can definitely be found online on all three avenues we have our own website at beaverproductions.ca um if you're not following on our instagram shame on you because <laughs> we think we're pretty nerdy and cool and we do some funky things um, so it's just a really neat way to see what we do, basically, behind just the final product. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, Facebook, which if you're on, fantastic. If you're not, good on you. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, and one question I wanted to ask that came up was, do you do, you do writing outside of your your job per se or do you find that that you get enough storytelling within your job that you don't feel the desire or the need to like you know write stories or scripts or whatever you want to call it i actually have been thinking about this myself a lot um i because i come and go from it i mean i write all the time and i wholeheartedly think emails count i'm not gonna lie to you to craft the perfect email yeah. which is a skill it's a skill it should be its own course sure, sure. Uh, um, i will teach it uh <laughs> no that aside i do i dabble in it i do and i don't i kind of creatively cycle in and out of hobbies so um a couple of years ago i really wanted to i always try and push myself in some way shape or form that is out of my comfort zone and the form that writing took a couple of years ago was to actually do a couple um, storytelling sessions through Viva Voce, which is put on by Blue Canoe Productions. And basically what it is, is every handful of weeks or once a month or however it shakes out, maybe it's more staggered than that, I can't remember. Anyway, they have these themed nights where you can go out and you can it can be a story, it can be a poem, it can be a song, but they'll have a theme to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taught in front of classrooms before, so speaking in front of people doesn't weird me out too, too much. And I thought, you know what? 
I'm going through a lot of changes right now. I want to share this in a creative way. How do I do that? I love to write and I love to speak. Um, so I did a couple of those storytelling events. Um, so I've written in that way. Mm. And since going to the film festival and actually watching the movie Who is Bruce Kaufman, um, I'm a little more inspired to continue some poetry as well. So nothing I would ever dare to publish, uh, perhaps something I would dare to read out loud once and let it disappear into the universe. Yeah. But, um, yeah, writing comes and goes in different forms. Email is my only constant. Hmm. But in and of itself, it's still craft. That said, I do have to... Um, I mean, we take these... There's this really unique space I live in where we will take these thoughts and images and ideas and it's part of my job to translate that into an actual pre-production document that the client can look at and say, okay, I agree to this. Hmm. So it's a lot of translation of thoughts and images. Um, that's a very unique space to be in mm-hmm. and to interpret someone else's ideas, interpret your own ideas, and then put those two together to have a cohesive, I want to say document, but it's not, I mean, it is a document, but it's more than that. Um, and then make it succinct enough that people actually want to read through it and share it with others who have to approve it. That is writing that I was never taught. There's not a class for it that I know of anyway. Um, and yet it's a very integral part of my job, taking ideas and visuals and actually translating it to spoken and written word. Mm. That's a neat space to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the way that you describe that. Um, well, it's so nice to have you here, Amesha, and, and I encourage people to check out your website and, and try to find the the video that you guys did, the, the project that you did on, did you say Jeannie Rosen? Correct. Yes. yes. Regina Rosen for mm-hmm. Compassionate Kingston. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll have you back in the future. And uh, again, just thank you for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. AMHS KFLA's Vocational Services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit amhs-kfla.ca. Hello, I'm Tamara Cicerella, a counselor serving area residents who live with addictions or mental health concerns. Deeply committed workers like me assist people in reaching their recovery goals. On April 1st, Addictions and Mental Health Services in Kingston and Frontenac joins Lennox and Addicton in offering confidential, quality services. Addictions Mental Health Services, Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox and Addington is committed to providing the best possible services to all who need it. For more information in Kingston and Frontenac, call 613-544-1356 or in Lennox and Addington, 613-354-7388. If you like great music from the 60s and 70s and good covers, listen to Frankly Speaking, music to tickle your memory bone on Fridays at 1 p.m. on CFRC Radio. You're listening to talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. If you want to access past episodes of talk, Simply go to the CFRC Podcast Network and you can listen to a tremendous array of engaging and inspiring podcasts, past episodes of this very show you're listening to now. My wife Mary and I went to a wonderful show on Saturday night. We had tickets to the Isabel Bader Theater in Kingston. Yes, here in Kingston. And the Juno-winning group called Digging Roots was performing. A very dynamic and engaging couple 
Raven, whose vocals and guitar, and his wife, Shoshana, on vocals, and their son actually playing on the drums. Tremendous show. They have such great chemistry up on stage. And so I feel inspired to play a few songs by one of our very own here in Canada. Digging Roots, Juno Winners. Here they are. This track is called Spring to Come. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca.
of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgauthier.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. 
Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. The address, 1111 Taylor Kid Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.